Hello, and welcome to the Future Christian Podcast, your source for insights and ideas into what it means to live as a follower of Jesus in the 21st century. At the Future Christian Podcast, we talk to pastors, authors, and other faith leaders for helpful advice and practical wisdom to help you and your community of faith walk boldly into the future. Here's your host, Lauren Richmond Jr. Hey, and thanks for listening in to the Future Christian Podcast. My name is Lauren Richmond Jr., and I'm pleased to be joined by Reverend Dr. Paula Stone Williams. Hello. Good to see you, Lauren. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for your time and patience today. And uh, appreciate you, you being on the pod. Sure. My pleasure. So, Paul has a long history of service to the church for 35 years. She led a large New York based church planning ministry. She also served as a mega church teaching pastor, magazine editor at large, seminary instructor, and pastoral counselor. She's a doctor of ministry and pastoral care and serves as a pastoral counselor and CEO for RLT Pathways, a Colorado based counseling nonprofit. She's been a TEDx uh, and TED speaker. Uh, and she travels around speaking a lot. And right now she's serving uh, as one of the co-pastors and a founding pastor of Left Hand Church in, what are y'all, Longmont, Colorado, right? Longmont. Mm-hmm. Yep. Longmont. Awesome. Well, uh, Paula, for our listeners who don't know you well, uh, share some of your story if you don't mind. Sure. I was always been a bit of a renaissance person. As you talk about the things that I'm doing, it's like, wow, she's busy. <laughs> but I've always been kind of that person. So yes, I did run um, what became a very large, one of the nation's largest church planting organizations. I was on the preaching team of two different mega churches, one here in Colorado, one in the Philadelphia area. Mm-hmm. I was the editor at large of a national religious magazine. I was actually the host of a national quasi-religious uh, television show oh. um, that was on in 70 markets around the United States uh, on PAX TV. It did all of PAX TV's yeah, programming in the middle yeah. of the night. I also was the uh, head writer for that and then also worked as an adoption caseworker for about 25 years and then uh, ended up getting my master's and doctorate in pastoral counseling. So I also have had a, a private counseling practice but I knew from the time I was three or four years of age, I was transgender and mm-hmm. just was hoping I could get through life without transitioning. Finally came to the realization that wasn't going to happen. And so I came out and promptly lost every single one of my jobs. Yeah. Of course, in all 50 states, you can't be fired for being transgender, but in all 50, you can be fired if you work for a religious corporation. So mm-hmm. everybody I worked for, with one exception, was a religious corporation. Yeah. Uh, that exception was the magazine and they pulled my column immediately uh, but they they had to uh, keep me employed until my contract ran out which was eight more months hmm. uh, they didn't really have me do anything in that time frame so yeah i pretty much lost all of it and then just kind of had to build it all back from scratch which was not all that easy i um was pretty frustrated that i had really lost my denomination i was one of the national leaders in the independent christian churches and churches of christ which mm-hmm. is a denomination of about 6,000 churches, a lot of mega churches, one of the leaders in national church planting, Yeah, actually runs the Exponential Conference. And I was uh, one of our, I don't know, probably 25 or 50 national leaders. And just, I mean, I was totally turned out from that world. I, I knew uh, thousands of people in that denomination. And to date, I've been contacted in a nice way by about 60 of them. Wow. 
And I've met, I think, 20. I think we're up to about 20. And I think it's six more than once. So um, not exactly um, a warm reception there. Yeah. And then one of my friends from LifeBridge Church, where I used to preach in Longmont, uh, one of the other staff members there introduced me to Mark Ted at Highlands Church in Denver. Mm-hmm. From Mark, I got to know the guys at Denver Community Church. And yeah. so uh, joined the preaching team at Highlands and uh, for a while also on the preaching team at Denver Community Church. Both those churches joined together with Forefront Church in New York, which is my son's church, yeah. to start uh, a left hand uh, not quite th- uh, three years ago. So about uh, three years ago, I did my first TED talk. Um, that uh, it was done at TEDx Mile High, and it's had four million views. Wow! So that's kind of what catapulted me into the stratosphere of the TED world. I've done another uh, TEDx Mile High talk. I'm on their curation team. I um, I've been a speaker's ambassador for TED. I've spoken for TED. I spoke at the TED um, Summit, which is an every three year event. Last year, uh, from that, I've done a bunch of TV shows uh, and. Um, and speak at corporations all over the world. So last week I talked to Pinterest and the week before that MasterCard and um, um, yeah, do a lot of international speaking as well. So I spoke for Eli Lilly, one of their uh, spinoff companies a couple of weeks ago at 6 a.m. and then again at 1 p.m. because hmm. they were a worldwide company. <laughs> yeah. And then at, uh, at 11.30 that night, I did another event for a company in Mumbai, India. It was, I believe, noon wow. on the next day for them when I did that. So, so I'm doing a lot of that. Good thing you're doing uh, it well all as, virtually then. Uh, it's uh, it's wonderful. I, I have a speaker's agency in New York City that books all my stuff for me, and they've been able to get my regular in-person speaking rates. So I'm wow. not complaining about that. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Yeah. Well, share, if you would, a little with our listeners what it's meant what it meant uh, in the past for you to be a Christian. And if anything's different now, what that looks like. I think my faith is probably far more peaceful to me now. I grew Mm. up in the evangelical world and felt like I could change it from within. And I don't think I realized that that's actually not possible. I I would not say it's possible to change it from within at this point. And so for a lot of years, probably 20 years, my last 20 years working in that world, um, my theology was in one place and my denomination was in another. Yeah. So for me to be freed from that was actually initially frustrating because I found that um, the mainline Protestant churches that I was attending, um, they were frightened by my evangelical background, particularly yeah. by the fact that yeah. I had been an, yeah. an evangelical megachurch pastor and that I had taught at evangelical seminaries. And so um, they were not really here to have me. Plus, I actually prefer evangelical methodology. I like the music. I like the non-liturgical nature of it. Mm-hmm. I like uh, the non-denominational nature of it. Um, like my de- former denomination was not technically a denomination. It was a collection of 6,000 churches. Right. And so the independent church uh, movement, yeah, um, that to me appealed more. So once I found... Um, Highlands Church and Denver Community Church, it's like, oh, now I have found my home uh, because these are places that have mainline theology, more liberal theology, um, but have the methodology that that I prefer. Yeah. 
Now, uh, for our listeners, Paul and I are Paul and I come from. I guess I always say, Paul, we're kind of ecclesiological cousins, or at least we come. I from think those it's cousins or siblings. Siblings, I mean, are, maybe. Yeah, there are three branches yeah. to what was been known as the Restoration Movement. Other people call it the Stone Campbell Movement, mm-hmm. and um, and that's based on Alexander Campbell and Barton W. Stone, the two early leaders in the 19th century. And you have three different branches that have come out of that. You have mm-hmm. the independent Christian churches. You have the non-instrumental churches of Christ. Both of those have about two million members each. And then you have the disciples of Christ, which is your denomination. Yep, that's and correct. And so all three from the same roots. Um, I'm deeply embedded in that. I actually, uh, Barton W. Stone is my great, great, great grandfather. Yeah, so I'd, I'd heard of that. My roots go way, way back. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Well, I want to come back. I have a question I want to ask you, but I'll come back to that from hearing your background. Um, but what spiritual practices have you developed or might you recommend to others? You know, when it comes to spiritual disciplines, I remember working on my doctorate and taking a course, uh, required course in spiritual disciplines. And I, um, I said at the beginning to the two professors who are also friends of mine, I said, yeah, you're going to find that I'm rather incorrigible when it comes to traditional spiritual practice. Um, I, I just haven't found any of the practices that work for me, not mm-hmm. fasting, not uh, contempt for the prayer, not, you know, and they're like, oh, well, oh, shoot, you know, we are, we're going to convert you. You'll be fine. <laughs> You'll love it. And when I was all done, they're like, oh, yeah. Yeah, no, that's not that really work for you, does it? Hmm. Um, for me, probably the most valuable thing I've ever done was I was a part of a Roman Catholic study group for 25 years in New hmm. York that met every week. And the um, uh, the rector of the Long Island Seminary, Immaculate Conception Seminary, uh, had a PhD from Louvain in philosophy. So he really was my spiritual mentor for 25 years. That group for me was where my um, real spiritual strength developed. And, uh, you know, outside of that, I just enjoy the uh, the weekly worship uh, services of whatever church I'm a part of. And, of course, at this point, I'm leading uh, yeah, yeah. worship at a church. You spend quite a bit outdoors. I'm curious. I know I've talked to others who really connect the outdoors to their spirituality. Has it been the same for you? You know, my definition of God is um, probably what historically has been known as general re- revelation. I mm. I say all the time at our church yeah. that um, we have just three responsibilities. First of all, to love the God who burst on the scene 14 billion years ago in all of God's complexity, yeah, um, mystery, ever expansiveness, rooted in relationship and grounded in love. I use the same language every single time, which is, in fact, I think, a definition of the Big Bang and the discoveries of quantum physics, that the ultimate building blocks of the universe are not made of matter, but are made of relationships, pattern of relationships between non-material entities. So when I think of God, uh, I think of that. I think of the ultimate reality being relationship. And I think of the Trinity. Mm -hmm. And I think of God as relationship. Uh, and of course, if if the only ultimate reality is relationships, as quantum physics seems to indicate, then the greatest force in the world is love. So yeah. when I talk about loving God, that's the God I talk about loving. Uh, and then the person of Jesus uh, and the spirit. 
And then we feel like our second responsibility as a church is to love our neighbor, which is every human being with whom we come in contact. And our third is to love ourselves. And you can't, you can't do the other two if you can't love yourself. So that, that kind of is the foundation of our, pretty good um, of our, yeah, our, what we teach at left hand church. I'm curious. Are you familiar with the work of, uh, I don't know if I say her name right. Ilya Delio. Uh, no, I'm not. She's yeah. a Catholic theologian, uh, but comes from a science background and she, she writes about, you said it better than I could quantum physics and yeah. all that. Um, uh, no, most of my work in that area came through John Polkinghorne, who was oh, a, interesting. Um, a British, um, uh, actually was a member of parliament at one point, uh, astrophysicist who actually was on the team that coined the term quantum physics and discovered chaos theory. Interesting. And also was an Angli Anglican cleric. So he's also a, an Anglican priest. So, um, a lot of his work, particularly, I think his book, Quarks, Chaos, and Christianity, hmm. was seminal for me, as, as was Owen Gingrich's book. Um, he's an astrophysicist at Harvard. Um, his book, God's Universe, were both uh, really helpful to me in that area. I'll have to check those out. Well, let's, uh, let's shift gears here. Let's talk about – I thought it would be a great opportunity to talk to you about kind of your – experience in church planning you know, like what you've done for so much of your career and like you said what you're doing now so what uh, i, I kind of want to just like hear like i mean there's i imagine it's gotta be there's so much to choose from but what is there some like what would you say is like a big takeaway from like your lifetime in, of experience in church planting i do i'm a believer in in church planting. I'm a believer in the church. Mm -hmm. um, if you take a look at the history of our species, we did not grow beyond the level of blood kin mm -hmm. uh, to become a tribal species until fairly recently, really, in our history as a species. And what brought us together beyond the level of blood kin was actually not what one would think, which was uh, the need for protection and safety. What brought us together beyond the level of blood kin as a species was the search for meaning. Mm. So think um, yeah. Stonehenge or burial mounds in North America. Uh, the search for meaning brought us together. And that actually is when our um, evolution as a species sped up exponentially. It's where we actually became the humans we are today. And so baked into our very species is this need to explain the basic meaning of life. Mm, yeah. And to me, that um, ultimately is why I believe in religious institutions. We're also a tribal species. Uh, Edward O. Wilson is a sociobiologist who taught at Harvard and MIT and won two Pulitzer Prizes. One was in identi uh, for identifying that the key social unit of the species is the mm -hmm. tribe. And um, and then the other was identifying the nine new social species, uh, which are species that not only have a, uh, what Richard Dawkins would call a selfish gene, but also have a tribal gene. Mm -hmm. And he says one of the unfortunate realities is that of the nine new social species, we're the only one who's below, who's evolved to believe that an enemy is necessary for the tribe to survive. So where no enemy exists, we create one. Yeah, yeah. So I think religion is the good news and the bad news. Hmm. If you take a look at the three desert religions, Christianity, Islam, Judaism, mm -hmm. they began as desert religions, and therefore they began as religions of scarcity. That's completely yeah. understandable. 
But in their fundamentalist forms, they remain religions of scarcity. And yeah. in their fundamentalist forms, they also create enemies that don't exist. And right now, those two enemies are abortion and LGBTQ plus people. Yeah. And it's just interesting that, that they have chosen two subjects that cost their all male leadership absolutely nothing to hold those positions. You yeah. Know, only 3% of them Not are gay. Not a lot. And none of them are having abortions. Yeah. So, you know, it's just interesting that they've chosen two social positions, two enemies, if you will, that uh, cost them absolutely nothing. But for instance, if they chose poverty uh, as that their would main cost social something. concern, that would cost <laughs> them something. Yeah. Well, let's let's uh, let me ask about then. What do you see as the difference between planting a conservative leaning church? And a progressive leaning church, uh, like whether it's methodology, whether it's obviously theology, you know, broader philosophy. What would you say is the difference? Or is I think meth um, methodologically, I, I believe that uh, starting a church um, with the methods that the evangelical world discovered mm -hmm. in starting really with the the work of the Charles Fuller Institute, yeah. And Pete Wagner's work, and then carried on through Carl George's work. And uh, early on, uh, actually, Rick Warren at Saddleback was very involved in the church planting world. Yeah, They turned church planting into a science, and yeah. that's when I first became involved in it. And the organization I directed, the Orchard Group, we went from starting churches that averaged 50 at five years of age and topped out at 75 people mm -hmm. to churches that averaged often 500 at five years of age and were running 1,000 by year 10. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a church in this area we started where that kind of was their story, yeah. Discovery Church yeah. in um, Broomfield followed that trajectory. And that was having turned it into a science where you basically uh, look at the market Yep. and decide what causes people to go to church and what causes them to come back. And I think that actually is true regardless of your theology. Mm -hmm. People go to church because a friend invited them. 72% of people go to church because a friend invited them. Yeah. 76% of them come back because they liked the pastor and the message the pastor gave. Mm. So they identified with the spiritual journey of the person speaking. And then the majority of the rest came back because they like the music, they like the style <laughs> of the worship. So if we take a look, and I'm gonna be really crass at this point, yeah. what causes Americans to go to a church is a friend inviting them. What causes them to go back is they like the show. Yeah. They like the sermon they heard uh, with a dynamic, uh, exciting speaker, mm -hmm. and they like the music they heard. And um, interestingly, the biggest reasons they don't come back are the quality of the facility and the quality of the children's programming. Yeah, yeah, I believe and it's it. actually it's actually mostly mom who decides if we're coming back. Yeah. Um, that's um, that's kind of holds true. So that has nothing to do with theology. Now, right. having said that, I think there is a difference in the ability of churches once established to grow rapidly that is theological. Mm-hmm. We're seeing three major shifts, and Brian McLaren writes about these in um, uh, The Great Spiritual Divide. Um, three major shifts taking place. Uh, Richard Rohr talks about it in, in Divine Dance, too. A shift from orthodoxy to orthopraxy, a shift yep. from right belief uh, to right practice, um, from believing the right things to loving well. 
uh, a shift from the church existing for its own self-protection to the church existing for the common good. Yeah. Uh, and the third is, I think, significant to church planting, a shift from God as the eternal threatener to God as the ultimate loving and suffering participant. Yeah. The one who came to show solidarity with us in our suffering. So if you remove the threat of the God who actually really, really, really wants to send you to hell <laughs> because he really kind of can't stand yeah. you as you are, unless you repent and uh, become a Christian, um, that actually causes more people to go to church because they're driven to go by fear. Yeah. So they're afraid that once they die, that God's going to send them to hell unless they go to church regularly. So it's interesting, evangelicals and fundamentalists who do believe that that God will, in fact, send them to hell if they don't behave properly. Uh, they actually attend church more often. They'll attend three weeks out of four yeah. as opposed to one out of three. Uh, and they will give more income. They'll give 10% of their income as opposed to 2.8% of their income that, <laughs> that the rest of us get. Yeah, yeah. So you take away that uh, fear factor, and you that's where you don't see uh, churches like Highlands or uh, Denver Community Church or Left Hand uh, or any of the mainline denominations, new churches grow as rapidly uh, because they they don't. They, um, they motiv don't <laughs> motivate through fear, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm curious. I feel like this kind of relates to the statement you said earlier about um, some of the mainline Protestant denominations being kind of scared off by your evangelical roots. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm just kind of curious about that. Um, what do you think it is about? I mean, uh, maybe say for our listeners, I feel like I have a hunch, but I'm curious to hear your response. Um, what do you think that's about? You know, I used to teach a doctoral course in a doctor ministry program, Current Trends in American Religion. And, um, you know, I, I believe the unfortunate sobering statistic is that most of the mainline denominations, if they continued their current patterns, yeah, which they good. actually will not, you know, it, it, there will be a point at which they, they aren't losing the number of people they're losing right now. Yeah. But if you take just the United Church of Christ, for instance, at their current levels of loss, that denomination won't exist in 25 years. Yeah. Most of the mainline Protestant denominations won't exist in 25 years. The, the um, PCUSA, Presbyterian Church of the USA, is in pretty good shape. Evangelical Lutheran Church in America is in pretty good shape. Um, but you get uh, the uh, United Church of Christ. Disciples, uh, the disciples are in great Christ, shape. Your, your denomination, yeah. not in great shape. <laughs> no. And um, uh, most of those churches are people 70 and over yeah. in age. And I think, um, I believe that there is an inappropriate dislike of worship styles yeah. that are non-liturgical and that the leadership of those denominations, first of all, those denominations are well endowed. Uh, they have a lot of buildings. And so the monies are going to be around for a long time. And so the clergy are going to keep getting paid for a long time. Yeah. And so they don't have that same Not motivated. that yeah. you and I have as church planters yep. uh, to get it done now. Um, but those churches, um, a lot of them just don't see the relevance of developing a worship style that is, that is popular. And so the fact that I said a few minutes ago 
Um, but I think people come back because they like the show. They'd be like, see, exactly, exactly, yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. And my, my point to that would be, um, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Actually, some of the greatest worship moments in my life have been in the middle of Broadway shows. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I used to always take people to see Les Miserables in New York uh, when I lived there. And um, I think every single time I went, it was a worship experience. Hmm. Uh, there's nothing wrong with teaching people and entertaining them at the same time. And I believe we do that at Left Hand Church. And interestingly, during COVID, we've got 15, 1600 viewers a week mm -hmm. from all over the world. And I think it's because of John and, and my preaching. And I think it's because of um, uh, of Heather Lynn, uh, Heather Lynn's music. Yeah. I, I believe that we just, uh, we, I don't understand why the mainline churches are opposed to that kind of methodology, yeah. you don't have to sell your theological soul yeah. to shift your methodology. Uh, and that's that would be my one complaint. You know, there are exceptions. I think of uh, a church in um, Asheville, North Carolina, UCC Church, where uh, Sarah Wilcox uh, pastors. Um, you know, the, it's a vibrant, new, exciting church that is, in fact, liturgical in its worship style. Mm -hmm. uh, but those are the exception, not the rule. Yeah. I, I have this observation. I'm curious what your thoughts on it are, Paula. Um, like it seems to me like when people think church, like if you think your average kind of like suburbanite or really even young, like 20 something city dweller, like when they think church, they think like mega church worship style. Right. So yeah. Trying to get someone like that to visit like a high liturgical church to me seems next to impossible. Am I wrong? Well, I think you'll see a lot of younger um, uh, evangelicals or post-evangelicals sure. uh, who are intellectuals who yeah. actually really like the Episcopal Church. So yeah. I was uh, – <laughs> one of my friends is in the uh, Newbegin School uh, right now. And, okay. Uh, yeah. So I watched – uh, her with her as Pete Inns, um, uh, the theologian who's written popularly and marvelously about the Bible, as he talked about how he just can't uh, abide by evangelical churches any longer and that mm. he goes to an Episcopal church. Um, but those are the kinds of folks who tend to go to Episcopal churches are yeah. the more intellectually inclined yeah. among the, the younger generation, although Inns is a boomer. But if you uh, look at the uh, Gen X or the millennials. Um, yeah, certainly Sarah or Rachel Hall Evans would be a prominent example, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I think if you take a look at, um, you know, Jim Chafee's done an amazing job with the Evolving Faith Conference. And mm -hmm. if you take a look at the people that um, Jim uh, uh, knows to appeal to, of course, he he's, comes out of the evangelical background and was a um, music producer in, in uh, Nashville. Mm. But he he has caught you know where the market's moving that there yeah. is in fact a a sizable market for um, uh, the, an unchurched population that want to explore spirituality together but not in typical liturgical fashion. Yeah. Uh, and so you know my son's church, a forefront church in New York, is a church of about four hundred people that's uh, five years old. And I swear half of Broadway goes to his church and their, <laughs> their music is just amazing. Yeah. In fact, their worship pastor, 
I used to play Fontaine on Broadway. Wow. Um, and it's, um, you know, they just have all these 20-somethings mm. uh, flocking into their church because it is, in fact, uh, a church that um, that has what I would unashamedly call a good show. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I, I mean, even if we think, like, historically, uh, I think of, like, these big Protestant, mainline Protestant cathedrals, um, and I got to imagine, like, back in the day, like, they had a pretty good choir that was, I, I mean, they certainly wouldn't call it a show, but it was, I mean, if you think about, like, these big buildings, like, they were incredible Piece of, so many of them were incredible pieces of architecture meant to, I imagine, draw people in. Yeah, when I, um, you know, one comes to mind right away that I could, in fact, attend. Um, not now, just because of the politics that have, have kind of made a mess of the place. But Riverside Church in New York was mm-hmm. built with Rockefeller money. Yeah. And um, they've rather misogynistically treated their most recent pastor uh, they've finally caused her to just say I'm out Not of here. super well, yeah. Uh, yeah, it was just pretty ugly. Um, but they had an amazing choir and liturgical worship and a couple thousand people that uh, attend or were attending. And yeah, that's a place I could have gone. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll be preaching in a couple of weeks for Middle Collegiate Church in New York where Jackie oh, Lewis yeah, is. Yeah. And I preached for them last November as well. And they are, um, uh, they're mainline RCA. Well, they're a collegiate church, which predates the yeah. the RCA, and um, you know, full building and an amazing choir, um, a little bit more liturgical, maybe kind of halfway in between the two. Yeah. And uh, but they also appeal to uh, both of those churches would appeal to a um, a more intellectual um, kind of population. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I, I'm finishing up a memoir for Simon and Schuster and my editor. I was struggling through some stuff a few weeks ago, and the editor said, well, my, my pastor was saying something in a sermon, and, um, and she started talking about what the sermon was. And I said, wait a minute, is that Jackie? And she <laughs> said, yeah. And I said, oh, my goodness, I, I go there. I said, We're, you know, obviously, you weren't there when I preached last year. Yeah. You have remembered it you know, once I started working with you on my book. But uh, you know, those are the kinds of folks, an editor for Simon yeah, Schuster, yeah. that uh, that you see at those churches, and that's um, that's a little bit more difficult to create in uh, in a Denver, Colorado, yeah, in a, in a Manhattan, New York. It's even harder yeah. to create in Brooklyn, yeah, than, than in, in Manhattan. Yeah. Well, I'm curious. I listened to. I mean, I listen. I've been listening to some of the. Uh, influential evangelical church planning voices over the summer, you know, Stetzer, um, Newhoff, uh, you know, those, those kind of folks. And it's been interesting hearing them, how they talk about how they think COVID will affect church planning. And I, I'm curious your thoughts too. Like, I know a lot of evangelicals kind of plowing full speed ahead, doing, trying to do an online launch or something. Like, how do you think, uh, maybe not just for evangelicals, but for progressive uh, kind of leaning, like, I guess it's a broad question, but how do you see like this COVID like affecting church and, and the future of the church, especially as new efforts? Yeah, I probably should preface my comments by saying that um, I transitioned a little over six years ago and 
haven't been as involved in the church planting world, uh, frankly, that world that I used to be involved in wouldn't let me come back in. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I take a look at even the first 15 years of this century, we saw a lot of new churches play around with video mm-hmm. and pretty much all of them come to the conclusion that video could not be a primary way of doing church, that it could be secondary, but it, it couldn't be primary, that mm-hmm. people needed to gather. Yeah, And so like Life, Life Church uh, probably taught that as much as anybody else. And now I think all of us are realizing that once we do get back, uh, it's just like all of my my corporate speaking I've been doing recently. I would imagine once COVID's over, I'm going to be doing maybe half of that live and about half of that's going to stay mm-hmm. uh, virtual, uh, which is fine by me. I don't mind speaking to 4,000 people and never leaving my living room. Yeah. Uh, but I believe for the church, it's going to be the same. Like one of the things that we're talking about on left hand is a realization that once we do have people come back in, we have got to stay camera focused. Yeah. That our pastors got to be um, uh, looking into the camera as much as uh, she's looking into the audience. Yeah. And that our background has got to be tight and good as it is now. I think yeah. we, we have a, for a brand new church, I think our, um, I'm, I'm actually very pleased with our, uh, the uh, product, if you will that uh that we that we put out on the weekends and i think we have such a a large viewership because it is um visually pleasing and pleasing to the ear it's uh you know we're stuck at 720p as everybody is who's on facebook as a platform yeah um but we're we're shooting in 1080 Mm -hmm. um and and have the capacity to shoot in 4k which you know we i mean we'll be thinking about these things from yeah. now on out, yeah. even once we're live, we actually have, uh, we call our small groups branches and we actually have um, probably our most vibrant branch right now is our virtual branch, which yeah. has people from all over the world and is led by someone in Dunedin, New Zealand. Wow. So, um, you know, that that I believe is going to be a, a part of the future. But again, the church, when the day is done, is incarnational yeah it's flesh the church is flesh and christianity is flesh it's it's fleshly yeah so to think that christianity can succeed via disembodied images Mm. is um i think maybe chipping away at its core yeah i can't disagree at all i can't disagree at all well, I know I, I'm I miss the face to face with our yeah, people a lot. I appreciate what you say about looking at the camera. I know I've been watching uh, some pastors on Facebook, and it's just kind of like a awkward sighing, side angle the whole time. And it's like, just look at the camera, like because it's kind of like, yeah, are you preaching in, uh, to somebody, or are you just, yeah, just look at the I camera? I worked in television <laughs> for uh, 18 years, so yeah. Uh, it's pretty easy for me to stare right into a camera uh, and read a teleprompter, well, which, uh, which we don't have. Um, but I memorize all my sermons, so it's yeah. easy for me to never yeah. take my eyes off the camera. Well, I want to ask you one more question that's kind of related, a little bit off topic, but I'm curious about. Uh, and I've seen this, and I'll 
state my bias here, someone coming from, you know, mainline Protestantism, which is super focused on theological education and higher education at that seminary and such. I see it a lot in, in the evangelical plan, church planning world, especially uh, a lot of folks who come from a business background or communications background, but there's not a lot of theological education. Uh, so I kind of asked the opposite question of what I asked when I had a, uh, seminary professor on here recently, I asked her, tell me why theological education still matters. Why should we keep investing it? So I'd kind of ask you the convert inverse of that. Like, um, what would you say, uh, does theological education matter for ministry? I guess. I believe it matters for the church. Um, I find that unfortunately seminary is pretty effective at teaching people theology and teaching them nothing about entrepreneurial leadership. <laughs> You're not wrong. How to, how to grow something from scratch, how wrong. to relate to people. And so I, I, um, you know, when we started left hand, we had, uh, I was the only trained theologian with mm -hmm. two master's degrees and yeah. a doctoral degree. And, uh, I still, I remain the only trained theologian. Now, uh, John Gaddis, our other, uh, preaching pastor is an attorney. And um, John is uh, very well uh, educated theologically, but it's uh, self-education, which I think is fine. My son, uh, the same way, he's lead pastor of the church in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. uh, Jonathan's actually one of the finest theologians I know. And uh, he studied under the tutelage of a um, PhD in, in New Testament from Yale. Oh, wow. His spiritual director forever, Jared Webb. And so that actually is what was the, you know, Jonathan's major theological formation. He, and he reads voraciously as do I. But I do think it's important to have a theologian on staff. Mm -hmm. I think I... that uh, at, at our church, um, I, you, you know, you see a lot of these evangelical churches that take hard and fast positions mm -hmm. that are uh, hermeneutically ridiculous yeah. and, and even exegetically suspect yeah. because they've never studied the original languages. Yeah. They don't really even know how the canon of scripture was formed. Yeah. And so I think that having a, um, a pastor who's, uh, who's got that background is pretty critical. You make such a good point uh, even initially about seminary not preparing you uh, entrepreneurially or whatever. Uh, right. I'm, working, I'm working on the MBA right now for that reason. Uh, and I'm taking class in nonprofit management right now. And I'm just thinking like a seminary, we should have like one class in like how to run a board. I mean, absolutely. I, I took um, uh, one of my master's degrees is in practical ministries. Mm -hmm. And so it was 36 hours of all of that stuff. And I just loved doing it. Yeah. And I used to teach a lot in that same program. I taught church planting in it. Um, and when we taught church planting, it was the very practical side of it. Yeah. And my, the scores that I would get from students would be in the stratosphere. And, mm. you know, I'd like to think it was because I was a great professor. Yeah. But I think the truth is mostly it's because I was covering information yeah. that they found to be relevant that they simply weren't getting in their uh, theology courses. Well, it's the, I don't know if you've heard this analogy, but one of the things I've heard a lot is, you know, going to seminary, getting an MDiv is like training to be a chef and then running a restaurant. Like you, as a chef, you know how to cook, but running a restaurant is a whole another animal. 
And uh, exactly, I think I think that's one of the. I'm half tempted to like talk to my seminary and be like, "Hey, can I can I teach a class and like how to run a board or stuff?" Because I know I could have used that class. <laughs> you know, it's um, you know that's the kind of practical stuff that that I I created. Um, for instance, uh, I wrote a chapter in a in a book on church planting on the development of your board. Oh, and I said you uh, generally want to start with a um, an external board of uh, mm-hmm. uh, six people and internal of just the lead pastor. Mm. Uh, so you had seven total. Yeah, and then at the end of year one, uh, you lost two of your external people, and the external people were always either from the denomination or from supporting churches, financially mm-hmm. supporting churches. Uh, and then at the end of year one, you bring two people from the local church on, two fr- external go off. The end of year two, two more come on, two more go off. The end of year three, two more come on, two more go off. And so by the end of year three, you have a totally internal board yeah. of seven people, and their terms are staggered so that those who came on year one will serve three years before they take a year off. And we would always actually allow, uh, at the Orchard Group, we would allow uh, board members to function for, uh, to have two successive mm-hmm. three-year terms before yeah. they had to take a year off and then they yeah. had to take a year off. And the only staff person ever on the board was the lead pastor. Mm-hmm. And that, um, you know, we, we found no reason to change that in, Mm-hmm. 30 years of church planting, it yeah. just worked. The only thing you would do would be increase the size of the board, always keeping it um, a an odd number. Yeah. Uh, and we would increase the size of it from 7 to 9 to 11. Uh, rarely did we ever go uh, larger than 11. Yeah. And uh, always would have um, the lead pastor as one of the voting members, never as chair. And every single meeting, you would have an executive session where the lead pastor is out of the meeting, whether there were problems or not, because there's no way to start doing that if you haven't done it from the beginning. Hmm. It's simple board stuff. Yeah. Uh, it's Carver policy governance. And, I think that's uh, a... We used it all the time. I think it's a great uh, practice of that, starting with external and slowly transitioning. Um, <laughs> yeah. Because in my experience, like, and I'm sure you've experienced this too. When you start a new church, you kind of get the church hoppers and disgruntled people who see right. your new church as an opportunity to kind of like set their agenda. Right. And it, at least in my experience, like for something new, it's so important to kind of stay true to that original mission. And that kind of external board can help you kind of slowly hold on to that and slowly transition. Yeah, there's even a name for it. It's called the Clash of the Dream. Um, oh, yeah. And, you know, we. We talk about it a lot. It, it's inevitable. And so the other thing that you have, um, most new churches somewhere in the first three years go through a crisis. We went through ours last year, had a major staff crisis. And you want the wisdom of people who've served as elders elsewhere yeah. in the past. Yeah. Uh, that, that ends up being an important thing to take you through that. When we would see, when I worked well, with the um, uh The when I worked with the um, the Orchard Group, it wasn't uncommon for me to chair the board of a very rapidly growing new church for even ten years mm. um, as an external person, and that was because uh, super rapidly growing churches usually had extremely charismatic lead pastors yeah. who also 
would shoot themselves in the foot pretty regularly. <laughs> Never. And so they you needed a strong, um, a strong chair to just stop that from happening. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's move on to some closing questions. I appreciate you. I've been just kind of peppering you with questions, and I appreciate sure. your response here. Um, so you can take these closing questions as seriously or not as you'd like to. But if you're a pope for a day, what would that day look like? I would um, ex cathedra um, make the pronouncement that clergy could marry worldwide. Um, because I believe that is the genesis of the Catholic sex abuse issue. Hmm. Uh, and I think if you allowed uh, the clergy to marry, you would see very positive things happen worldwide in the Catholic Church. Good. Uh, a theologian or historical Christian figure you would want to meet or bring back to life? Teilhard de Chardin. Ah, yeah. Um, you know, was was seen as a scoundrel and a heretic by the Catholic Church um, and kicked out and now is a saint in yeah. liberal Catholic circles. Yeah. Um, just a, a wise, brilliant philosopher, theologian um, who uh, I, I wish I could remember his quote. I've, I'm using it in the end of the chapter in my book um, that uh, man will come to realize that nothing matters except love. And once we come to realize that for the second time ever, man will have discovered fire. <laughs> Great. Um, what do you think history will remember from our current time and place? Uh, I think it's possible that what history is going to remember is the loss of democracy in the West. Um, I hope that's not true, but I'm afraid it might be true. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I'll ask this question, perhaps a more hopeful question. <laughs> what do you hope for the future of Christianity? You know, we we will always be a religious species because, like I said early on, um, it was the need to, to it's man's search for meaning that brought us together in the first place. And I I think Jesus' instruction on his last day of public ministry, the last public question he ever Rina, answered, can you please keep twenty second chapter of Matthew, um, which of the laws is the greatest? And he said, love God, love your neighbor, love yourself. And there was dead silence because they were stunned that he said something so simple. And um, he said, you know, that that's it. That is in fact, in the final analysis, what it's about loving God, loving, uh, loving neighbor, loving self. And I believe that if we can do that better and better, we can change the world. That'd be a good start. Well, thanks so much for your time. Uh, where can people find out more about you? PaulaStoneWilliams.com. Awesome. Well, again, thank you for your time, and uh, may God's peace be with you. Thank you, Lauren. Good being with you. Bye. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us on the Future Christian Podcast. To learn more about Lauren or the podcast, visit future-christian.com. But hey, before you go, do us a favor, subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. It really helps us get the word out to more people. Thanks and go in peace.